So we're up to the, uh, the concluding verses in the second vision that's in the book of Revelation. But I want to just do a bit of a recap of where we've come so far because Revelation is a, a big book and it's a complex book and it's helpful from time to time just to remember how the pieces fit together. In the first vision, in chapters 1 to 3, we saw painted a picture for us Jesus Christ who is Lord of the Church. We saw him as this royal high priestly figure in the temple and walking among the seven golden lampstands which represent the churches, the seven churches that Revelation was originally written to. But the number seven signifies that this is a message not just for those churches but for the whole church uh, across the ages and in every time and place. The second vision that we're about to finish this morning in, verses, in chapters 4 to 7 paints a picture of Jesus as Lord of creation who's given authority by the Father over creation because of what he's accomplished in his life, death and resurrection. Chapter 4 showed us ultimately who's in charge of the world. The Father. The Father seated on the throne, rules over creation and he deserves worship of every living creature by virtue of the fact that he is the creator. Now, God structured the creation in such a way that his authority over creation is to be administered by and through human beings made in his image, made to be sons and daughters. And that's represented by the imagery of the scroll in the father's right hand. That's my left hand, right hand. And the invitation to take the scroll, open it up and to look inside it. Now this right to rule over creation is what we gave up when we sinned. We grasped for our status as image bearers and wanted to rule and conquer the world as gods instead of ruling under God in joyful obedience to him. The Bible's story also tells us that we haven't, strictly speaking, gone out on our own in that rebellion. We've formed an alliance with the devil, with God's adversary. We've adopted him as our replacement father and while we think we're in charge, we've actually submitted to him as our replacement king. And that was the dilemma in chapter 5. No one is worthy of ruling creation as a true son of God. The whole human race stood condemned because sin isn't just the naughty things we do. Sin is a rejection of God's rule. It's cosmic treason. We're siding with the enemy. And treason is the ultimate crime that deserves the ultimate penalty of death. But chapter 5 also gave us the good news. Because we, all as sons and daughters of Adam, were unworthy 
to fulfil that mandate, God has stepped in and has done for us what we are unable to do for ourselves. So Jesus, the Son, we see in chapter 5, he is the new Adam through whom the Father will bring about a new humanity, a new human race. And he's worthy not because he's seized power like we want to do. He's done it by humbly serving, by laying down his life for sinners at the cross, taking on himself the sentence of death that we traitors deserve. By dealing with sin, he removed condemnation for all who trust in him. And that's why we can say, Death has been defeated because death is the penalty and we are no longer under the penalty. When we are declared righteous, not guilty in Christ, that penalty no longer applies to us. And by removing the penalty and reconciling us to God, he's disarmed the devil because condemnation, accusation is his only weapon against us. There's nothing left for him to accuse us of. So he's no longer our father. He's no longer our king because we are now children and servants of the true father. So Jesus has been declared worthy to approach the throne, take the scroll, open it up and that's what we see him doing in chapters 6 and 7. He is the one through whom God's authority is administered in the world. The Father's rule mediated through him. But the purpose of appointing Jesus to this place is much bigger than just having Jesus in this place. As we saw in chapter 5, 9 to 10, it wasn't just to ransom people, You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's more than that. It's to restore humanity to our original design. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So as Jesus opens the seals one by one, begins to rule with the Father's authority, We have unveiled before us how this work of the creation of a new humanity is taking place. And what we saw is that the restoration takes place through judgments, which is why we need to understand God's judgments as judgments of hope. As I said last week, the pattern of history is the pattern of death and resurrection. God kills in order to make alive. He puts to death that which is corrupt and decaying and already dying in order to remake it into something new, something immortal. He hands us over to the outworking of our sin, allowing our sinfulness, allowing our evil to run its full course until it ends in death and the grave. Why? So that out of the dust and the ashes he may resurrect a new humanity. That's what we saw then in the first four seals. The four horsemen representing conquering, war, famine 
and death, a bleak picture of human history all played out under the wrath of God, confirming the verdict that we are all unworthy. Based on some of the TV shows I watch, and I think this is true in real life, sometimes the police know that someone's a criminal, but I can't pin it on them. They have to produce solid evidence for their charges. So they allow the criminal to pursue their criminal activities. They may even facilitate those activities until the crime reaches its goal and the criminal is caught red-handed. And all that they've done is then exposed in the court. Well, in the heavenly court, all the evidence is stacked against us. The case for the prosecution is watertight. God has shown the truth about the human heart by allowing the human heart to do what it desires. Now, seeing these four horsemen, then we must ask the question, where are God's people in the midst of these judgments? Is there anyone who's been faithful to God? in this whole mess of humanity's rebellion. If God's purpose is to create a new humanity, then where are they? The answer is seen in the fifth, sixth and seventh seals. In a way, the first four seals depict the physical realities of what's actually happening in the world that we see with our eyes. The last three seals reveal for us the spiritual reality of what God is doing behind the scenes through it all. So with the fifth seal, we saw God's people not immune from the suffering that comes from living in this world under a curse. In fact, with their their suffering heightened because of the persecution that comes from being followers of Jesus in this world. Though in that place of absolute safety, under the altar, before the throne, crying out for justice, but with a confidence in God who has demonstrated beyond the shadow of doubt that he is a God of justice. In the cross we see he is perfectly just and perfectly full of grace and mercy. At the cross, he carried out his full justice by handing Jesus over to death as our representative and by doing so, he showed the full extent of his mercy to us who are saved through faith in him. So, these people under the altar are given white clothing representing Jesus' perfect righteousness and they're told to patiently wait enduring the suffering because we know that God is actually accomplishing something for us through it. So this is where we stand now, in the midst of God's ongoing judgments going out into the world, but assured of our status in Christ and of the Father's purpose in making this new people for himself, to make us like Jesus At the same time, we're still waiting and longing and yearning for these judgments to finally be completed. And the completion is what we see in seals 
6 and 7. So what God promises to those under the altar in seal 5, wait a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brothers should be complete who are to be killed as you yourselves have been. We see that fulfilled in seals 6 and 7. See, God won't stop working until all those that he has foreknown from before the creation of the world, before those he's chosen and predestined, have been called and justified and glorified. So we're called to be patient, waiting for this justice to be complete because he is patiently waiting in his time. He wants to ensure justice is done for all of his people, even those who have not yet been created. So his patience means that we here, 2,000 years later, haven't missed out. He's patiently put up with humanity generation after generation because his plan is to take from generation after generation those who belong to him. That's why the numbers numbers feature prominently then in that sixth seal. It's a picture of God very clearly distinguishing between those who are and who aren't his people. And that will become clear at the final judgment. Through the, the Bible, the idea of God's final judgment is often uh, conveyed with two concepts, one of separation and one of numbering. God makes the distinction between the righteous and the wicked and then he counts the number of the righteous ensuring that they're all there. That imagery comes out a number of times, doesn't it, in Jesus' parables. The sheep separated from the goats, the wheat separated from the weeds, good fish separated from bad, obedient son separated from disobedient son, wise bridesmaids separated from foolish bridesmaids and we could go on. Later in Revelation we'll see an angel measuring the New Jerusalem. That's an image taken from the Old Testament which conveys the the same idea of numbering, of ensuring that all of God's people are accommodated. No one's missing or excluded because the Father's house is big enough and has enough rooms to accommodate them all, all of his children. So we see here a separation and a numbering. Firstly, there's the separation, verses 12 to 17. When confronted by the reality of God and the Lamb, there will be those who remain unrepentant and because of their unrepentance will live in fear and dread, trying unsuccessfully to hide from God's wrath. Now this picture of the mountains and the rocks, it's it's taken out of Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah says, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendour of his majesty 
when he rises to terrify the earth, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendour of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. See the sense of finality here. It's the end of human haughtiness and pride. All idols will pass away and the Lord will be seen to be the one true God. But even then, some will reject the grace of God. They'll run from him even when they know that their idols are nothing and worth only giving to the animals. Even when faced with the undeniable truth, sinners will still try to suppress that truth and would rather live in darkness than submit to God. So really, the final judgement is really God handing us fully over to the outworking of our sin. This same sense of finality is here in Revelation 6. It portrays creation itself being undone. The sun, moon and stars, they were worshipped by the pagans as gods. Yet we know they're just simply God's creations and he can blot them out just as easily as he put them there in the first place. The sky is rolled up like a scroll and the mountains are demolished. That's a picture of creation going in reverse, going back to formlessness, the heavens and the earth dissolving. It's not the end of all things though, it's the undoing of all things in order to make a new creation. In this judgement, there's no partiality There's no distinction. All who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God are faced with the same judgment. So it doesn't matter whether you're a king or a general or rich or powerful or if you're just a slave. Our status in this world will have no bearing when we're judged. What will matter on that day is our status before God, whether his name is upon us, which is what we see next. The next part of the vision then, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7, show us that this final judgment is being delayed in God's patience. Four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. This word is a word for a storm, destructive winds. We experienced something like that, didn't we, recently? I got up early one morning a couple of weeks ago and it felt like the world was ending. Uh, the poor dog nearly got blown away. That's the image there. But here God is putting limits on his judgments. He's not bringing the full force of his justice to bear on the world because he's not yet completed his work of saving people out of the world. So as we saw last week, his judgments here and now are always limited because he's patient and merciful. So we, to reiterate, we as Christ's people are in the midst of the judgments of God on this world 
called to stand firm on the truth of his word, even if it means losing our lives. From the world's perspective, we appear weak and defeated and pathetic. We're a pile of bodies under the altar who are still crying out for justice because in this world there is no justice for us. The righteous perish, the wicked prosper. But in this sixth seal, the veil is drawn back and we see the reality of who we actually are. Separated out, encouraged to see ourselves in the way that God sees us. And to help grasp this, Jesus gives us two pictures. And here we see a pattern which we've seen before a couple of times. John hears something described and then when he looks to see, he sees something that appears different yet it's the same thing. Remember the lion and the lamb. He was told, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered and then when he looks to see the lion, what does he see? The lamb. But the lion and the lamb are actually the same person. So what is John here described, a perfect, full, complete number of people, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Because there were 12 sons of Jacob who became Israel, 12 became the number that symbolised the full complement of God's people, God's chosen people. That's why Jesus chose 12 disciples because he was starting from scratch, rebuilding a brand new Israel. Now in the Old Testament, the Lord calls Israel my servant. And so this group of people is called servants of God, or literally the word is slaves, doulos, normally translated as slave. In the Roman world, a slave would be tattooed with a mark of ownership on a prominent place, their hand or their forehead, so there would be no doubt as to whom they belonged. They couldn't be stolen by someone else because they had the mark on them. If they were harmed or killed, then their attacker would have to answer to their owner. God's work of salvation is likened in the Bible to redeeming slaves, to buying us out of our servitude to our master, making us his own and then bringing us into his household in which he then gives his slaves the status of sons and daughters and heirs. He gives us the right as heirs. And so to make sure that we stay safe, he seals us with his mark of ownership, his name so that we belong to him forever. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Israel were God's redeemed slaves brought out of Egypt into his land. And he gives a promise in Romans 11 
In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And this is a picture, 144,000, a picture of this promise being fulfilled. But now we come to the twist. John looks to see what he's heard, but what does he see? Great multitude, too big to count, made up not only of Israelites, but of people from every nation, people, tribe and tongue. This isn't a different group of people. It's the same group that we just heard about, the same group that we saw under the altar, identified by their white robes. See, the true Israel, represented by 144,000, isn't just made up of those who are Jews, according to the flesh. It's a people who are defined by a promise, given not through family descent, but through faith. If you believe in Jesus, Galatians tells us, you are a true child of Abraham. You're an heir of the promise given to him. So we just heard in Romans 11.26, in this way all Israel will be saved. In what way will Israel all be saved? Well, that's explained in Romans 11.25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The nation of Israel was only a temporary arrangement, preparing the way for the permanent one. They were never the full number of God's chosen people. They would only be filled up, completed by the addition of the Gentiles, you and I, through the preaching of the Gospel. So all Israel will be saved by the addition of the Gentiles because Israel means all, regardless of their ethnic or their racial background, who live by faith in the Son of God who died for them. The true Israel began even before Jacob or Israel was born. started with the very first people who heard and received the promise of the Gospel, God's free gift of righteousness for those who believe. I think that was Adam and Eve. You can talk to me about that later. But people like Abel and Seth and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and I could list all the other stories of those who lived by faith well before Israel even became a nation. People who are examples for us of the countless number of people who were forgotten, who weren't recorded in the history books, who lived by faith in God. These people in the Bible were all part of the family tree, so to speak, of Israel. But there are others, aren't there, who were alongside, who were then drawn into Israel by grace. People like Hagar, Melchizedek, Zipporah, Moses' wife, the many Egyptians who 
left with the Israelites when they went out of Egypt. Rahab, Ruth, Uriah and Bathsheba and the list could go on. All people who were not Israelites according to the flesh but they were brought in because of the promise. So Hebrews 11 tells us, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The word perfect there means complete. The great list of the saints who lived with a legacy of faith that enabled them to stand firm and endure great tribulation isn't complete until it includes you and me. So, the 144,000 tells us that the family will be complete. The great multitude tells us that it's us, those from the nations who make the family complete. We may look at the multitude and say, this group is too numerous to count. How can we be sure everyone is actually there, who's supposed to be there? And God says, don't worry, I've counted and they're all here. Do you trust in the son? Then you're here. The father knows how many children he has and he will not lose a single one. So what are we to do when we feel overwhelmed by the judgments of God going out across the earth? When we feel like those who are slain beneath the altar, weak and rejected, longing for justice but unable to see it? Well, we lift our eyes to the throne and we see what's happening before the throne and we know ourselves to be among the 144,000 and among the great multitude and we sing with them, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're told today that if we refuse to go along with the narratives of our culture, if we stand firm on the truth of God's word, then we're on the wrong side of history. Now that may be so from a human vantage point. Future history books might record that the Christians of the 21st century were too conservative, they were bigoted, they were hateful. They might even celebrate the decline of Christianity in the West. They might say that we are no better than a pile of corpses under the altar. But that's human history. And we've seen in those first four seals, the four horsemen, the legacy of human history that ends in the grave. No, we're not on the wrong side of history because, to use the old pun, history is his story. Our destination isn't Hades, it's the throne of God. If the world forgets us, so what? God knows us. God has numbered us. He's sealed us with his own name. So finally we come to the seventh seal. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. This seal is like the seventh day of creation. If you know the story, on every other day of creation, God spoke 
and at the end of the sixth day, he'd finished speaking creation into existence and the seventh was a day of rest. No words of God are recorded on the seventh day in Genesis. It was a day of Sabbath. It was a day of sitting back to enjoy all that he'd made. So this seventh seal marks the completion of God's work, not of creation but of salvation, of new creation. His wrath is finished. The unrepentant have received justice. The full number of his children are brought in and the new creation has begun with the formation of the new humanity. So now there's rest in heaven. And this rest is preempted and described actually in the verses leading up to it. Verses 15 to 17, the saints are there before the throne, sheltered by his presence. They're never again hungry or thirsty. They're shepherded by the Lamb and all death, mourning, crying and pain is wiped away by the hand of the Father. That's the picture of absolute rest. That's Psalm 23, isn't it? Acted out in reality. The saints under the altar were told to rest a little longer while they waited for God's justice. Now, because God's justice is complete, they don't have to wait a little longer. They don't have to rest a little longer. They can rest forever. Our future, our destiny in Christ is this rest, this forever Sabbath of God, celebrating the completion of all of his mighty works in creation and judgment and salvation and knowing the intimacy of his presence. One day we'll see the scene played out before our very eyes. We will be there before the throne in that great multitude. But right now, because our future is so sure, it's so certain, we, we can and should allow that future reality to seep back into our present. So our worship today as the church should be shaped by that worship around the throne of God. The songs that we sing, they should echo the songs of the living creatures and the elders and the angels who fall before the majesty of Father, Son and Spirit and declare his holiness and his mighty works. At church, when we sing, we're not just mouthing words. We're joining with every creature in heaven and earth to worship God. Not only that, we can and should then live lives that mirror the service of those around the throne day and night in his temple as we live every day before the face of God. If someone were to watch and evaluate your life, would they use the word service to describe it? Because in the Bible, worship and service are synonymous. In Hebrew, it's the same word. We worship God by serving him. That means the words we sing and speak here on Sunday need to shape the lives that we live out Monday to Saturday so that our whole lives are an act of worship. 
in the new creation, that will be the case. So let's now, in the present, let's live into that future as the Holy Spirit enables us. Let's pray.